0: Hey, I'm Dalton.
1: Hi, I'm Haley. And welcome to Fly on the Wall. This week we have a really good episode for you. But first, make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we love getting messages, so make sure you email us if you have thoughts. Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. And make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Anywhere you get your podcasts, we're there.
0: Today on the podcast, we have Jonathan Burks. Jonathan Burks is a policy and political professional who graduated from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Burks worked in the Bush 43 White House and was the Deputy Policy Director on the Romney Ryan 2012 presidential campaign. He most recently worked as Speaker Paul Ryan's Chief of Staff. We're really excited to have Jonathan on the podcast today. Thanks for
1: joining us. Uh, you got your start in politics on the Hill while still in the School of Foreign Service. How did you balance work and school and... How did your career get started after graduation?
2: Yeah, I didn't balance them well, um, honestly. I, You know, for me, I'd come to Georgetown because I wanted to get involved in politics. And so when I finally had the opportunity to um, be working full-time on the Hill, uh, my focus really shifted to um, to the Hill. Um, and so that first semester uh, senior year, I was really working more or less full-time, going, still had a full class load and, um, you know, sort of struggled a little bit to to figure out a balance. Um, But, you know, after, you know, three years of college, you sort of figure out what you really need to do and um, what you might be able to get by without. And then second semester, I ended up just having one class. And so, you know, I basically just slept here on campus and um, worked mostly full-time.
0: Wow. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit more about your time working on the Hill for Speaker Ryan? Uh, how does Speaker Ryan determine which issues to prioritize, and, and what was your role there?
2: Yeah, I mean, really from the beginning of um, my time working for the Speaker, he's always had a big policy agenda of things he wanted to get done um, that he, you know, felt were transformational for the country and really address big problems. Whether it's um, an uncompetitive tax code, whether it's the um, big deficit and debt problem that we have, um, that's fueled in, in significant part from. Uh, entitlement programs that need to be modernized. He's always had these ideas of of big things he wanted to get done. Um, But when the 2016 election happens, President Trump is is elected, uh, we recognize that we had an opportunity to actually take some of that big agenda and put it into practice. And so you know, One of the first things we did after the election was sit down and figure out what are the big things we think we can get done and tried to map out what are the things we can do and how do we sequence it? How do we make sure that we actually have a, a chance to get um, you know as, as much done as possible? And so we put uh, together what's called a GAMP chart, um, which is used in uh, construction often to... Um, You know sort of uh, parcel out resources and sort of coordinate um disparate work streams figuring that that was something that um, the president as a guy who you know views himself as a real estate guy would have some familiarity with and um and so we spent some time putting together this gantt chart together with our leadership team on the hill together with our policy team and laid this all out and and so we went up to uh, trump tower in december of 2016 and sort of walked the president through this is what we want to do. This is sort of the amount of time we think it's going to t- take. Here are where we need the administration's inputs, where we think the Senate fits in, and you know, sort of walked him through this and you know, got his yeah. This looks like something we can can do, and then took that and, and worked with our colleagues over in the Senate to make some adjustments to it to reflect their process and all the rest. Um, and then rolled it out to our members early in, in January of 2017 um, as here's the game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really wanted to make sure that everyone understood sort of what the priorities were, uh, what we we're trying to get done, and uh, you know it's easier in a legislative body where you've got literally hundreds of people you've got to coordinate if everyone knows what the game plan is if we open up the playbook and you know let them uh, understand what, what their roles are to, to play.
0: Yeah, so what was it like for you guys trying to get tax reform pushed through the Congress?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, tax reform came after the failure of health care reform. And I I always, whenever asked about sort of how tax reform happened, always think through, you know, part of it was the failure of health care reform. Um, because it really changed the dynamic within the House Republican Conference and really um Really unified um, House Republicans in a lot of ways about we want to get something done um, that first year of the the Trump administration, um, and we had missed on health care um, because of uh, there's sworn enough votes for it in the Senate, and so we were very focused, very unified on uh, what can we do as a conference, uh, recognizing that we also still need to get through the Senate, that we also need the president's signature, um, and you know taxes is something where Republicans have been pretty unified around. For you know, 40 years at this point, and there was a a big need um, in terms of uh, an outdated tax code that hadn't been really been reformed since 1986 in a comprehensive way, uh, and so it was an area that the speaker was passionate about. It was an area that a lot of groundwork had been laid over an extended period of time um, among House Republicans in particular, um, and so we had a lot more uh, unity going into the process. We took the entire House Republican Conference to a offsite, um, you know, sort of retreat to walk through tax reform in detail, um, have the members, you know, vet in on sort of all the details of what we're trying to do. And, you know, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, um, and the chairman of the Tax Writing Subcommittee on on Ways and Means, um, Peter Roskam, you know, gave these presentations, got fired at by all their colleagues and, you know, fired back. And it was really a, a great... You know, this is how democracy ought to work—kind of um, thing where we spent an entire day with, you know, members doing nothing else, no other—you um, know—we did it off-site so that they couldn't, you know, step outside for just a minute to take a, a constituent meeting or, you know, all those sorts of distractions—and um, really, you know, had this conversation and had this um, opportunity for members to get buy-in. It's sort of what we were trying to do, uh, and then we moved out from there because we were basically had only a few months before the end of the calendar year, which we had set as an informal deadline for what we wanted to get done. And, you know, the Ways and Means Committee, having done a lot of work in prior years to um, get things ready, was ready to move out quickly, had done a lot of hearings in past years. And so it was really one of those things that uh, the moment that we had sort of that agreement among uh, members, and we had, you know, worked through a process with the, the administration and with the Senate about sort of what the broad brush um, outline of the thing was going to be. Once it was clear healthcare was done, we really just, you know, started moving, and everyone was, um, you know, highly motivated to try to get something done.
0: Yeah. So, is there anything that you wish had gotten more attention from the mainstream media that you guys were trying to accomplish during those years of unified government?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that goes underreported is the work we did on rebuilding the military. Um, You know, you go back and look at the um, Budget Control Act from 2011. It really put in place, um, you know, just sort of some arbitrary cuts to uh, the growth of of military spending. And we thought it was important to address the readiness problems that had arisen because of that, um, you know, restricted funding, and also to, you know, address the need for a change in how sort of the military was thinking about modernization and um, and other issues sort of that um, uh, surround sort of military spending, and so we uh, spent a lot of time getting a budget deal done in twenty. Um, I guess it ended up being in twenty eighteen that we actually completed the deal, um, but uh, a lot of time getting. Uh, the buy-in from across the Republican spectrum, but also uh, getting sort of the Democrats um, agreement because we're going to need that to, in order to get through the Senate um, to, you know, a significant increase in, in defense spending that allowed us to get in place the first um, on-time defense appropriations bill um, in, I think it's, it was something like 12 or 13 years um, at that point since we'd last had one that was actually on time. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a, a, a pretty big accomplishment that just doesn't get a lot of talk. Um,
0: yeah, um, so moving on to uh, a little bit of a different branch of government, most of your career has been spent in the legislative branch, but you did have a stint working for the Bush 43 White House, mm-hmm. um, and then you served as the Speaker's Liaison to the White House during the first years of the Trump administration. How did they differ, and then what did you take away from those two different experiences? Yeah,
2: well, you know, I think uh, George Bush's White House, uh, Bush 43, that is, uh, White House was a you know, extremely well-organized, extremely disciplined place, um, in large part because it had so many people who had worked in the White House previously and had very definite ideas about what had and hadn't worked in their prior experience um, in the building. And so from the top with the president to his chief of staff, um, Andy Card, there was just an environment and atmosphere of we're a team, we're going to act like a team. Uh, Everyone is going to be uh, moving in the same direction, recognizing that our job as staff is to provide advice to the principals, and ultimately the president makes a decision, and then our job becomes to execute on his decisions. Um, I, I think it's fair to say the Trump White House is a much more free-flowing, um, less organized place, um, and you know it, it really points out one of those things that um, is characteristic of the White House, which is the White House ultimately reflects the president. Uh, there's very few institutions in the White House that are um, determined by statute, sort of how they're structured or what their functions are. Almost all of it is just sort of the habits that have developed over the years. And ultimately, they can change. They can um, be adapted to um, reflect what the president needs and wants in his, um, his White House staff. And so, you know, this White House, the president wants a free-flowing, um, sort of, um, you know, competitive environment. And he's getting that um while, you know what president bush wanted out of the white house was a uh, you know much more disciplined much more organized um process for developing ideas for controlling communications and all the rest
1: yeah so part of your job as the speaker's liaison um was to sit in on meetings with president trump minority leaders Schumer and Pelosi and Paul Ryan was there anything particularly eventful from those meetings that stands <laughs> out
2: well i think the the first um uh, time after the election after the inauguration that uh the congressional leadership met with the president was uh just quite a a moment uh you know because early on in the meeting and i can't remember exactly how it came up but president trump uh basically says to um, Minority Leader Schumer, yeah, you know, I was Chuck's uh, biggest donor. And uh, Schumer's response wasn't to to deny that uh, the president was a donor, but to say, you weren't my biggest donor. You raised, and then he gave out the exact number of amount of money that he had raised uh, that Trump advised for Schumer at some points. And they started arguing about uh, whether that was more or less than other people. And So, you know, it's just a a only in Washington kind of thing where you can have a Republican president talking about how much money he raised for a uh, Democrat Senate minority Minority Leader. So you were in the White House 18
0: years ago on 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about that day, what it was like?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, it started off as just about any other day. Uh, the president was down in Florida. And so we, I was working for the vice president at the time and, uh, and his domestic policy staff. And we were scheduled to meet with him uh, that morning to you know, for our, our regular weekly meeting to discuss sort of whatever the current issues were. And so I was sitting in uh, my direct boss's office, who was the the chief domestic policy advisor for the vice president. And he had uh, a little TV on um, on a bookshelf behind his desk that was on. And I sit down in his office, and this was you know pre-Twitter, pre you know ubiquity of cell phones and everything. Um, so if you hadn't weren't paying attention or didn't have a TV on, you wouldn't necessarily know anything in particular was happening. So I sat down and. They're showing on, um, you know, the cable news uh, um, fire smoke coming out of um, the first uh, tower that had been hit. And, you know, my re- reaction was, oh, what happened there? And um, Caesar the, the VP's domestic policy advisor, said, oh, it's um, a plane apparently uh, hit the, the World Trade Center. And it's like, oh, that's, that's weird. That's, you know, I figured that must be some sort of accident or something. And uh, but while we're sitting there, second plane uh, goes into the, the second tower and You know, at that moment, you're just, you know, awestruck at, oh, that's not an accident. Something's going on. Something's happening here. Um, And there's probably another five, six minutes before uh, the White House was in, you know, someone threw the fire alarm and ordered the evacuation of the White House. And so, you know, everyone is doing what all of us since kindergarten have been taught in terms of, you know, be orderly, be calm, you know, take your time, walk, don't run down the stairs and all that sort of thing. And as we're uh, walking out into West exec, um, the, which is just the road between, that runs between the um, Eisenhower executive office building and the West wing, uh, we're walking out there and, you know, planning to leave the complex. The, uh, one of the secret service uh, uniform division officers um, starts yelling, saying people run, run, women take off those heels, run. And, you know, at that moment, everyone's like, Oh, this is, this is for real. And, you know, makes a, um, you know, really starts, you know, running for it um you know because at that point uh we had no idea how many planes had been hijacked or where they were headed um you know we now know that uh the last plane uh had already crashed um you know due to the heroic actions of those on uh, flight 93 that you know we don't know where that plane was headed but um you know we think of either the capitol or the white house and so you know it's for me 9-11 is one of those days where you just Um, Take a moment and, and, you know, thank God for uh, the bravery of those folks on the plane who, you know, if they didn't save my life, they saved the lives of plenty of my friends who work in the Capitol. Um,
0: Wow. So um, from the position of the White House, how did things change policy wise and, and internally after that day?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you, you look back, um, we were uh, gearing up for, I think it was a campaign of character, um, was the, or maybe it was character counts. It was a new initiative that um, President Bush was going to be rolling out later that fall, uh, talking about sort of how to promote good character and good citizenship. Um, uh and, you know, that was sort of of the, the tenor of things that were um, higher in the agenda. We were in the middle of negotiating um, the No Child Left Behind education law. And, you know, it was very much a domestic focused um, presidency. And 9-11 really changed all that. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson in prioritization because if you are president of the United States, even given all the tremendous power and, and opportunity you have, you still have to set priorities. You still have to um, decide that this thing is more important than that and therefore I'm gonna allocate more resources. I'm gonna be willing to give up more in order to accomplish um, that top priority. And obviously keeping the country safe and, and defeating those who had uh, attacked us uh, became the, the highest priority um, for the country and for certainly for President Bush. Um, and so it really just changed the direction of, of that administration you know, 180 degrees.
1: Absolutely, and thank you for sharing that story. Another thing you've done has been working on a political campaign before they have the opportunity to get into office and set those priorities, um, specifically the Romney-Ryan 2012 campaign. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience?
2: Yeah. You know, I had never worked on a campaign before. Uh, it was one of those things that I'd always viewed myself as a policy person and, um, you know, that not particularly well suited for electoral politics. And But, you know, you get talked into certain things and you, you, you learn something about yourself, which in my case was that, yes, I am not well suited for electoral campaigns. Uh, but it was, you know, it was just a tremendous um, experience, and you know, at the time I was working for, um, uh, or was working for Paul Ryan on the Budget Committee. Um, he was chairman of the Budget Committee at the time, and I go to him and said, you know, the Romney campaign has called up and asked if I'd be interested in, in um, being the deputy policy director on the campaign. What do you think? And he's like, well, you know, if you that's what you want to do, you know, we'll, we'll hold your spot here. You can. Um, uh, you know, take a leave of absence and, uh, go up to Boston and do that. And, you know, don't tell anyone, but you know, I'm talking to them and, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but I could be the VP nominee. Um, and so ironically, uh, about a month after I was up there in Boston, I get, uh, called in, uh, the campaigns, um, campaign manager calls me up and says, Hey, uh, can you do me a favor? And I said, what's up? And it's like, we need you to write a memo. Um, about uh, sort of all the ways you would attack Paul Ryan if he was the VP nominee. And so, you know, I spent the weekend, um, you know, putting together the um, worst things that I could say about Paul, knowing all the, you know, uh, all the his policy positions, all of his, um, you know, just knowing him personally and all the rest. And apparently I didn't write a very good memo because they, uh, you know, Governor Romney picked him two weeks later, so. So
0: campaigns can be a really crazy experience. Uh, do you have any... Uh, exceptional stories from traveling the country with all these political powerhouses trying to convince 60 million people to vote your way?
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I So my job as the deputy was mostly Boston-based. So the, uh, the head, the uh, policy director for the campaign spent a lot of time on the plane with Governor Romney. Um, and my job is sort of to keep the home fires lit um, in Boston. But, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, the experiences you get on a campaign... Are just uncomparable because you you're not expecting any of it. It just sort of um, comes you know at you helter skelter and so I you know the comms director on the campaign would have this this morning meeting every day and um, and at the end of it she turns to me she's like Burke you're doing TV today I'm like what are you talking about um and I just assumed she was kidding and sort of you know walked out <laughs> um, and uh, you know. Just several hours later, um, one of her staff shows up my door. is was like, great, you ready to go to the studio? And I'm like, wait, what? Um, and, you know, before I know it, I'm sitting there on uh, camera with uh, Sonny in Orlando, um, which I wasn't sure what the name of the TV show or the name of the host. turns out she was the host. Um, and, uh, you know, so you just end up with these experiences where you're doing things you've never done before. Um, and because of the campaign, there's almost no preparation in a lot of ways. You're just like, yeah, you'll figure it out. It'll be great. Uh-huh.
1: So now we're going to go into what we call our lightning round. Um, these are quick questions, so think on your feet. You're a baseball guy. Who's your team?
2: Oh, Nationals all the way.
0: All right. So, what political show do you think is most like reality? The West Wing, House of Cards, or Veep?
2: I'm going to say Veep. I, you know, obviously it's a satire, uh, but it's brilliant satire, and satire depends on sort of being close enough to the the real thing that you know. You you actually draw blood when you're um, with the jokes, and so you know obviously it's not it's over the top it's crazy but uh, it really uh, it's the one that feels the most real. Um,
1: you're a Hoya. What's the best Georgetown freshman dorm?
2: Oh, New South. I don't even know if it's still a freshman dorm, frankly. I, <laughs> it is. I, I, <laughs> was, I was shocked to go in there um, last week and discover there's a bar in the basement of New South. I'm just you know I'm confused.
1: <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hey, happy to do it. Thanks for uh, interviewing me.
1: All right. Thanks again to Jonathan. If you liked what you heard here today, make sure you go to his discussion group, which is centered on where policy meets politics. It takes place every Thursday in the geopolitics office from four to five 30. There's free food and you can talk to Jonathan. So make sure you get there.
0: And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Fly on Pod, and email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you next week.